The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Without, without much further ado, after uh, some minor technical difficulties, I'm joined today by Maggie and Allison of the Coffee and Cases podcast. How are you guys doing? Good. Really good. Yeah, we're great. They think I'm so nice that they're hearing me twice. Uh, <laughs> the, that was the... <laughs> they they uh, are, are technical difficulties. So the, we weren't able to figure it out, but somehow they have a, they have an echo uh, yes. when, yeah. when I'm talking, so you hear me two times. <laughs> Um, is the first time or the second time better? Which one sounds better? Honestly, I only hear you once. I hear Allison twice. Oh, you hear each other mm-hmm. twice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not so nice. Then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you, you, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you, Maggie, uh, cause you had already told me that, uh, you unfortunately have COVID right now. You seem like yeah. you're doing very well for having COVID. How, how are you feeling? Um, well, my symptoms set in. Saturday, I had a temperature of 103.5 and the Ooh, like yeah. a radio station. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> my fever did break last night, though, but I still have. I mean, I hate my voice anyway, so I can only imagine. I'm so sorry, listeners, what it sounds like right now because <laughs> I'm still really congested and a sore throat. But I do feel a lot better, but I am quarantined until I have no more symptoms. So. Uh, and you are, um, that's the last bout I had with COVID, I was just a few days and it was over with is whatever the strain that's going on. But you said that you were, so you're a teacher yes, and you, and you guys are already back to school and mm-hmm. we're recording this on August 15th. So yeah. I don't know why you guys are in school already, but it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> true. Uh, but you said you made it four days before you got COVID. Yeah. We, um, had a work day on Monday. Our opening day was Monday. Kids came Tuesday, and by Saturday, I was symptomatic. And we had received um, a couple emails that some of our kids tested positive on Thursday night. So, yeah, it's great. Are you from a small town? I, I know. So, Allison is – I can't see Allison. She refuses to let me see her on video. Um, she, we have horrible that, Wi-Fi. Uh, yeah, she has bad internet. I, yeah, and and we've tried that trick too on this end too. So I I definitely know know how you feel. Um, but do you, do you guys you guys are both teachers? Do you teach at the same school? We, we did at one yeah. point, and then um, Anthony and I, my husband, moved and closer to his work, and so then I switched school districts. Very nice. So, uh, what do you teach? Uh, which one am I talking to, Maggie? I gotta, the, the no picture things really throw me. <laughs> oh out. no! And you both had this cool thing going on. I'm going to figure out on Zoom how to do what you guys have. Like your backgrounds oh, blurred, yes. and it looks really cool. Yeah. Um, I have my background my background blurred because I've been quarantined to my bedroom, so I'm sitting on my bed right now. And I was like, he probably doesn't want to look at my headboard. <laughs> More people should do that because the last the last interview I recorded, the the person was in their bedroom and it was a mess. And we spent a good ten minutes of the interview of me pointing out everything that was out of place in the room. So it was probably a good move. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, Maggie, what do you what do you teach? I teach middle school language arts. This year, I'm in eighth grade. Last year, I was in seventh grade. 
Nice. Is that what you're always taught as an English teacher of some kind? Yeah. Is language arts, English, language arts are English, right? Yeah, they're essentially the same thing. I was at um, the high school level when I worked with Allison and then moved to middle school when I came to my new school. Bless her heart. Which do you prefer? Um. Well, I had freshmen when I taught high school, so it really wasn't too big of a difference, but... I think I like middle school a little bit better just because I am really cheesy in the classroom and do lots of like, I don't know, just silly, cheesy things. And they tend to buy into that more when they're in middle school. And I don't get quite as many like weird looks <laughs> as I did when I was in high school. Well, now you've piqued my interest. I, so I, I used to substitute teach for years uh, when I was at the Bless fire department. because I, I only worked nine days a month, so I subbed on my days off. And I found that middle school students were just walking hormones. And I yes. would avoid middle schools like the plague. <laughs> You're not alone in that. A lot of subs do that. Yeah. Yeah. They're the worst. Um, but so w- w- give me an example of some of these kooky things that you're doing in your classroom. Um, so one of my, like if they're, we do a lot of cooperative learning. So they're in academically leveled groups. And so a big thing with cooperative learning is they're learning social skills or soft skills. So I'll say things like, Look at your partner and tell them they're great, 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 great. And they have to like great cheese and they they love that. And then <laughs> if they're being really talkative, I'll oh, say, wow. <laughs> um, hear ye, hear ye. And they say, all hell the queen. And then they get quiet. <laughs> wow, and you were able to get middle school students to do this. <laughs> yeah. Or I'll say, you're, uh, give your partner some fireworks. And I'll go. But you need the visual to see how, how amazing right. that was. I'm I'm just trying to imagine like my kids as middle schoolers. Like I feel like maybe in Kentucky the the there's much better behaved children. There must be uh, because I feel like you'd get a lot of uh, f you. I'm not doing that of most middle school students. I mean, I just tell them at the beginning of the year, I'm like, it's more fun if we are cheesy and just act silly. So just buy into it. And they tend to do okay. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, now, Allison, you are also a teacher. I am. And you are also a an English teacher. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. At the high school level. Mm-hmm. What grade? Or is it seniors? Yep. Seniors. So yes. do you do you do the the fireworks thing and the No, no, uh, not with the seniors. <laughs> I don't. Um I taught AP literature and our dual credit classes. Um so the students could get high school credit and college credit at the same time. Um but I actually just my colleagues say I went to the dark side, but I enjoy it. I'm working at our central office now as a digital learning coach and I'm doing some PR for our school, so so not so much in the classroom as, as right. much anymore. Yeah, which is sad. I miss those students. So, um, do you find uh, both of you guys? And in, in, uh, I've noticed I have I have two teenagers and a and an eleven or eleven year old. So I've got a senior, a junior, and a uh, sixth grader, and also a twenty one year old. Um, do you find that kids these days are idiots? <laughs> <laughs> Just, I'm just curious if they do a lot of things without thinking is what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I have a teenager myself. So, yeah. Are, are they, in fact, an idiot? <laughs> she's she's pretty oblivious. And uh, yeah, she does some some silly things. Yeah. Uh, I find th- th- this generation are 
the and I love them to death. I'm lucky enough that I that I have great relationship with uh, with uh, all my kids, and they they actually sit and talk to us sometimes, uh, which I feel like is a win for having teenagers if they'll right. just like sit down and have a conversation with you. But I find that this generation is it's like they're some of the smartest people the planet has ever seen, while mm. being the dumbest people the mm-hmm. planet has ever seen mm-hmm. all at the same time. And as 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 particularly as English teachers. I noticed that my kids like to invent words and phrases <laughs> or at least believe that they have. Um, and and I always think like, well, I don't understand. And I'm wondering if this is just a Midwest thing where I'm at. I guess you're technically kind of Midwest too down in the Kentucky. I don't know if that's still considered Midwest or South or whatever it is. But, you know, they, they do things like they, they took the phrase where, where someone might call someone bro, you know, right. like, like, uh, a fella to another fella might say, hey, bro, and they've turned that into bro, uh, bruh, and then they've turned that into mm-hmm. bruv, and they call their mother that. Uh, is that a thing? Oh, no. In- <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I don't think the bruv has made it to middle school yeah. yet in Kentucky at my school. I've, that's a new one. Oh, well, you, you just you might want to hope just that it never now gets Now we know it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's all the time, and it's, and I thought it was just my kids. It's all of them. Like if we're at like my kids play sports and stuff, and we'll have like banquets where there's like a bunch of teenagers with their parents there, and they'll be like, "Hey, mom, can I go over to so and so's house?" And I'm like, "Oh, not tonight." And they'll be like, "Bruv, come on, man." <laughs> oh like, no! You, how, what do you mean, bruv? Why are you calling her that? And yeah. they all do it. My my son the other day I was uh, my my senior we were driving to Chicago which is like a two hour drive for us to go see a comedian together and on the way there we saw a cop on the side of the road and he goes uh oh twelve now What's that right and the look on your face Al, or Maggie is the same exactly he said uh oh twelve and I said what the, what the hell does that mean why did you and and he's like you know twelve cops. I was like, that's what? not a, oh, yeah. no, that's not even a thing that, and then, and then he's like, uh, that, uh, you're an idiot. That's what everybody is calling. I said, that's not what everybody, oh, because I've never heard as I just, just proved, I said it. <laughs> no. And he says, well, what do you guys call him? I'm like, well, we would, if we were going to use a number, we used to call him five Oh, right. right. Uh, which was be two for two reasons. One, because they're, they drove five liter engine cars that said 5.0 on the side. Uh, and then there was Hawaii Five O, so we mm-hmm. called him Five O, and he's like, uh, "That's stupid, and you're old." <laughs> and we call him Twelve. Oh my! And I don't know. And this is the kind of thing I could only imagine as an English teacher, because like I imagine, like somewhere in the country, like a, a few teenagers were like sitting around, they're like, "Dude, like we need to change the language, <laughs> right?" And, you know, it needs an you update. You know how like. Yeah, it's exa- they always think everything needs an update, and half the time it's like going back to the same shit. That like, like he came home with a members only jacket last year. Oh no! It he's like, check out my new jacket. Like you guys don't understand style. I'm like, that was my style, you idiot. In 1992, I had that jacket. You're just you know recycling what they need to bring back though? Hyper color shirts. I used to love those things. Yeah, there are like some, I'm wearing yeah. right now. Oh, are you wearing one? <laughs> oh, no, you got an Under Armour. Uh, I th- oh, that's right. Yeah. But it's bright. Yeah. I should say I don't know what hypercolor means. You oh, should what? start there. Oh, there were, they were these <laughs> t-shirts. And what year were you born, Bob? 1979. Me too. Okay. So in middle school. Hypercolor. 
Yeah, there were these T-shirts. Mm-hmm. And when you would put okay. your hand on it and the, the shirt material would warm up, it would change color. Oh, though I thought you were mm. talking about, like, we used to call them the hot colors, like hot pink and hot. Like, oh. they were basically like bright neon. Oh, the gotcha. hyper color ones. Yeah. Yes. Yep. I know the shirts. I had a really good, my, I still remember my grandma brought me back. She was like in Florida and came up and she gave me a t-shirt and it looked like a white t-shirt. And then when I would go out in the sun, there was a dolphin on it. And then <laughs> you can imagine. I bet you did me. not get bullied at all when you wore right, that yeah. shirt. <laughs> so I'm like this big, I've always been like a big burly guy and I live in the country and, and, and she couldn't understand why I wouldn't wear my turns into a dolphin shirt. Right. Uh, <laughs> To school. Uh, but it was kind of the same thing. It was the hyper color. Yeah. yeah. It, it changed yeah. with heat. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, the thing is, they'll bring those back. They'll, they bring everything back. Mm-hmm. Or they think they need to improve on stuff. Like mm-hmm. the like the 1250 thing. Like right. all I can imagine yeah. is a couple of teenagers somewhere were sitting around. They're like, you know how like everybody calls cops 50? Check this out. What if we used a different number? <laughs> like. Like just totally change the language. We'll just use a different number and we'll call them twelve. And and right. and all I can I, I don't know if it comes from like like Adam twelve, like the old old. I have no idea where they came up with this, but it's 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 every day. And it, I can only imagine being an English teacher. You know what? Yeah, we need to all start using this twelve though in our podcasts, and then they'll be thinking we are. I mean, the bomb. They will think we are amazing because. We're using the language. No, then they'll See, quit I, using it because they'll be like, these old people are using it. <laughs> right. <laughs> See, true. I have a different, yeah. I have a slightly different approach. <laughs> My kids say things like that and I ridicule them relentlessly <laughs> over it, over and over and over again. And like the little scenario I just gave you of like two teenagers coming up with 12, I'll do, I'll go into a 40 minute long, but he was almost in tears on the way <laughs> to Chicago because I just kept going about how stupid they were right. coming up with this new number that they were using. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're just, they're, uh, idiots um, and geniuses too at the same time. The same, the same kid that called the cop 12 and thinks that I'm, I'm completely out of touch because I don't know that they're called 12. The same kid like has designed video games and, and, and coded video games Mm -hmm. and has them like out on the app store at 16 years old. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Dumb smart kid. I know. (laughs) I say that to my teen all the time. Yeah. So it seems like down in the South, though, like you get like a lot of this stuff has it. Maybe people are a little more respectful. Like they still call like they still call you like ma'am. Sometimes they do. However, a kid did call um, a teacher at my school, bruh, one day last week. And her See? response was pretty good. She was like, I am not $60,000 in debt for you to call me, bruh. <laughs> like I did not right. pay all this money for you to be disrespectful. Yeah, see, and you got to stay on top of that shit because that's what happens. Is it's like one kid's like bruh, and then and then she doesn't say anything, and the next thing you know, they'll all be doing it, and the mm-hmm. next thing you know, they'll be calling their mother bruh. <laughs> right. And then, right. like my wife, my wife was just like, <laughs> I, I was, I was not prepared for to go from like mommy to ma right. to ma <laughs> to bruh. Like what the hell <laughs> is that? Let's just it's hope coming. that's the worst it gets. It stops at bruh. That's true. That's true. You know. It's not so much the shit they do, it's the arrogance that they have and yes. where they think that they have come up with something so clever and so smart uh, and, it, and it makes me want to demoralize them and make them cry for a long time. <laughs> That's the only way that I see to I see to. I need you to come into my classroom. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> no, you don't. I've, I used to teach. I used to, well, besides substitute teach, I used to actually teach 
um, at the college. I was the the um, the head of the fire science program at our local community college, and and this was ten years ago. So it was like ten fifteen it started fifteen years ago, but it was it was like just at the point where like eighteen year olds were coming out of were like in coming out of school and started to feel really entitled. Like I'd see it mm-hmm. at the fire department, mm-hmm. like they, which is like a paramilitary organization. Like you have ranks and you follow, and you'd be like. Go grab that hose. And they're like, dude, you can't tell me what to do. And yes, I can. <laughs> right. That's yes, exactly I can. what. Yeah. It's my job to tell you what to do. So uh, I would open up every semester with my you're not special speech where I would. I, it, was, it was perfectly crafted and curated hour of me explaining to them how they're not special and it's not going to be okay. And that they better get their shit together or they're going to be complete failures in life. Right. Um, I had several talking tos by my dean um, <laughs> <laughs> telling them, and I you ever have say, a job that you like you have, but you don't really want? That was that, that right. was me with that job. Yeah. yeah. And, and what you're talking about, Bob, that is not specific to your region because my husband retired from the Lexington Fire Department here in Kentucky. And he would Mm -hmm. say the exact same thing was happening. Like these kids would get on and they would complain about how small their first paycheck was. And he's like, oh, you you have no idea what those small checks used to be like. Yeah. No, that attitude really started creeping in. I know. So I used to travel the country and and teach some too. I taught the National Fire Academy and I I did some speeches and stuff around the country. And everywhere I went, it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you would hire like a new probie and tell them, you know, go out and polish the wheels on the truck. And they're like, I didn't sign up for this to polish wheels on the truck. But I'm you like, did, though. Yeah. It's like, but you really did because I don't know if you noticed, but before you got here, those wheels were always shiny and they right. didn't just miracle themselves <laughs> right. that way. I used to polish the wheels on the truck. He used to polish the wheels on the truck. She used right. to polish the wheels on the truck. Yeah. And now it's your turn to polish the wheels on the truck. <laughs> Idiot geniuses. And I will say that Maggie can agree. Yeah, we've got a lot of students who, you know, they might make a D in class or an F, but they want to be, you know, like all of them neuroscientists. And some of them may go on mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they just don't enjoy English. Oh, that. God. But, um, yeah, some of them I would, good for you for having dreams. So that's what I would say. Good that you have dreams. Just try this. If you are, 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 are Allison, are you tenured at your school? I would imagine so. Yes, in the position yeah. you're in now. Yeah. Just try telling them that they're not special, and then and maybe put together a long. Oh no, I couldn't do that. You're not special. <laughs> oh, I couldn't do that, Bob. They're all special to me. I mean, well, I'm really not tenured, so them? I definitely couldn't do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was that, but I would have kids that would, you know, I still remember one, uh, one student that we had a, like a project, it was for building construction and they had to go out and find buildings of all the different types and take photos of them and tour them and then, and then do a presentation on them. And one of the, the kids came and like the images that he put up were like, first of all, they were the wrong type. And then like, they had like the Google watermark on them like they weren't he didn't go anywhere he just <laughs> did, yeah and so oh, he failed nice. the yeah. project like you wouldn't notice then, yeah <laughs> yeah and then i had to have a meeting with him and his mommy 
and my dean about why he failed. And then my dean wanted me there, like, well, can't you give him another chance? I'm like, no, he doesn't get it. He had, it was very clear no. instructions. Right. Yeah. He didn't do it. <laughs> oh. Anyway, it was nice to unload some of that. I've been holding it in for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about your, your podcast is called Coffee and Cases. Uh, and your tagline, which I'm told mm-hmm. came from uh, your daughter, Allison. Uh, is where yes. we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. Yes. Yep. All right. She... Good talk about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we decided. So Maggie and I used to teach in classrooms right next to one another. And um, mm-hmm. I had, well, we both have a love of all things true crime. And we would talk about, you know, what was on Dateline or 2020 or on the most recent podcast. And you know, I'd always wanted to start a podcast and I approached Maggie because mm-hmm. she's funny and I'm not. And so I knew <laughs> okay. I I needed her. And so I approached her and I said, hey, would you want to start a podcast with me? And she was like, let's do this. And so, yeah, we we decided we started on December 19th. That was my grandmother's birthday. Um, she's the one who kind of made me love stories and feel like stories could make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, we decided that we wanted to focus on cold cases. And we've done some of the more high profile cases, but we generally focus on the lesser known cases. um, And ones recent, more recently, we've gotten into speaking with family and law enforcement uh, for those episodes, which I think Maggie would attest to this at the beginning. We thought nobody's going to talk to us. You know, we're nobodies who are doing Mm -hmm. this podcast. But Mm -hmm. I think because we chose those lesser known cases, those families are so desperate for people to hear uh, those about, you know, their loved one and just to try to push for answers. And so they're very grateful and it, it makes you feel like the many, many, many hours that podcasting takes, which nobody tells you about going in are worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, and I, I, I'm not surprised at all. You know, like you, you guys said, we're just these nobody's doing podcasts, but that's all of us doing podcasts. <laughs> you know, most people, most <laughs> of us in the industry were, you know, I was not, I was not a famous person. I was a I was a fireman who made a podcast. Uh, you guys are teachers that made a right. podcast, but yeah, especially when yeah. you're you know for you guys it's these cold cases, and for me I do wrongful conviction cases. But if you're when you're dealing with ones that aren't real high profile, but most time people are just desperate for people to hear their stories, um, especially in cold cases because I think it it, it does so much mm-hmm. good to you know get the conversation even just to get the conversation going yep. again. That in so many cases shake something loose. Right. Yeah. But I'm telling you, Bob, the the case that, that we'll talk about here in a minute, if you ever decide to cover cold cases, I would want you to do a deep dive into this one because you do great work at getting answers. Well, I I, I appreciate that. And, and let, let's go ahead and, sl- and slide into that. I do want to say that. So there's there's plenty of episodes for people to um to binge on because you guys, I think as of now, mm-hmm. you guys have like 144 episodes out. You've been, you started before, mm-hmm. before the pandemic. Um, and, and it's funny that yeah. it's so far away now that so many, so few, like I talked to so many podcasters that all started like post 2020. And, and so the, the case we're talking about is the case of Valerie Brooks. It was episode 113. 
on your guys' podcast. So, so if you're mm-hmm. hearing this story and you want to hear the full mm-hmm. details, go check out episode 113 of Coffee and Cases. Now, you guys as English teachers have to. So, in, in my notes from Erica, the the case is about the the murder of Valerie Brooks, and it took place in what I would say is Versailles, Kentucky. Uh, but Erica <laughs> made sure to make a note that says pronounced Versailles, Kentucky. Which I think that's is correct. Wrong. Uh, is yeah. Erica wrong? <laughs> She's right. No, Erica is God right. It. It's, yes. It's <laughs> yeah. It's correctly wrong. <laughs> Why they spell it? Yeah. It should be Versailles. I feel like I right. I would sound very well read to call it Versailles, Kentucky. There is um, a castle so there so as B, well. So so they're just the people that live in this town just don't know how to pronounce the name of their own town. Is that accurate? <laughs> It's just a Kentucky thing. Like if it has a ville on the end, it's vol. Mm-hmm. Like okay. We just we just can't speak basically. So right. Like like Louisville. Like Louisville. No. Louisville. It's Louisville. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just went to right. Louisville yeah. the other day. We went. I was down in Nashville last week, so I went right through the cut right through the middle of your of your state on the way down to Nashville <laughs> from up here where I live. So it's 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 this took place in Versailles, Kentucky. Uh, right. on mm-hmm. New Year's Eve, 1990, uh, mm-hmm. and it was 22-year-old Valerie Brooks. At first, she disappeared. So I'll let whoever wants to to take the wheel here tell us about this case. Okay, so Valerie, um, I, I think you need to have a little bit of backstory. Um, she was 22 uh, in 1990. Mm-hmm. She had two children, two boys, um, and she was just this spitfire of a personality like the kind of friend i think everyone needs to have who will love on you when you need love but will tell you the hard truth when you like your you're not special speech that you were talking about bob that's the kind of speech i right. think that that valerie would give um but her family she had a younger sister tracy who was eight years younger uh brother michael who was three years younger um her family had moved to connecticut kind of piecemeal um, but Valerie hated it there. She was just loyal to Kentucky, loved Kentucky bluegrass, wanted to come back. Um, so she had moved back with her significant other, Edward, and her two sons. Um, and her sister, Tracy, was desperate to be back um, reunited with Valerie. So right around Christmas, um, so right before uh, this case happened, um, Tracy and Valerie's mom said, you know, we got you a Christmas present. You're going to get to go see Valerie. So she's waiting around. Tracy is. And she's thinking the courier is coming with a plane ticket. Um, But it was actually Valerie who showed up um, in this red and green car to pick her up and drive her back (laughs) to Kentucky. She said, do you like my sleigh? (laughs) She picked her up um, and they got back on (laughs) Christmas Eve. And just to kind of show you the kind of sister Valerie was, she waited until her sister came back with her to even decorate the tree. So that way it could be something that they did. Okay. together. Valerie worked at a Thornton's gas station in Versailles. Um, and by the way, and Maggie can tell you a little bit about Versailles, but a very small town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very tiny town. It's like um, a picturesque town. Their downtown is really cute. And it's just a typical Kentucky town, rolling hills, horse farms, old houses. It's really cute. And no one there has ever heard of that place where they signed that big treaty. Yeah, 
<laughs> right. That's why they don't pronounce it Versailles. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So the population in 1990 was around 7,200. So again, when we say small town, small town. But the Thornton's where Valerie worked, it was undergoing some renovation, um, but it was a pretty happening spot. Uh, officers would stop there for coffee on their nightly routes and Valerie would actually work the night shift alone there quite often. I asked her family if she was scared about doing that, and they were like, mm, no, because, you know, I I think her sister said, if you're sweet, she's sweeter, but if you're mean, she's meaner. So she could stand up for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was the gas station attendant there. Um, so on New Year's Eve, um, Valerie's sister Tracy had actually gone to their cousin's home Um to spend some time. And she called Valerie to say, Hey, when are you going to come and pick me up? And Valerie said, well, how about you just stay the night at our cousin's house? Because I'm actually going to pick up a shift to help out a friend. And so when the crime occurred and Maggie and I I think talk about this in the episode, it's even more sad to think that Valerie wasn't even supposed to be there that night. Right. But uh, her sister Tracy decided to walk home anyway, despite what Valerie said. And actually, one of the local cops had stopped to pick Tracy up to drive her to Valerie's house. Um, He reported later that when he stopped in to get a coffee, Valerie had thanked him for driving her home. So this is like a a Mayberry town, right, where um, Mm -hmm. people are walking on the sidewalks even late at night. But Tracy got home. And Valerie's youngest son, Chase, had actually eaten some of her makeup. And so she was freaking out. She calls Valerie. She's like, what should I do? And she said, just wash his face off. Let me talk to him and calm him down. And that phone conversation was the last that anyone ever spoke with Valerie. And what what time was that at night? So it was right before midnight. So it was late. Okay. Um, So everything in Valerie's case start to finish. Well, obviously not finished because it's not solved, but like as much as we know, um, happens pretty quickly as far as like the last time someone spoke to her when the incident happens and when she's found. There's not a huge amount of time that passes there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, yeah, because the police are alerted to come to the scene because the um, the alarm in the gas station was triggered. I'm assuming most gas stations Correct. have like a button that the teller can push. So, So she's on the mm-hmm. phone around midnight. About what time did that alarm come in? I'm not sure the exact time. There were many questions um, I asked of the local law enforcement that they would not give me the answer to. And right. it has not been published in any of the media about it, nor does her family know that exact time. Um, so a lot of the details in this case are just what her family was able to tell me from the autopsy report, um, from them speaking with witnesses. Along the way. But yeah, that that robbery alarm was triggered. Yeah. That's one of the tricky parts about the cold cases is usually the police won't release the files because it's still open. So it's, right. I'm sure it's hard to get information. Right. Um, we do know that that when that alarm was was triggered, though, there were four officers within a quarter mile of the gas station. One of them was only one tenth mm-hmm. of a mile away. Um, I don't know how long it took them to respond to that 911 call, um, but when they arrived, Valerie was nowhere to be found. And it's crazy because just from her personality description, you would think that obviously if someone took her, there would be a huge mess, but there wasn't anything really like 
out of order in the store or around the outside of the pumps. Like there were displays of pop, all of that was still standing, like just not what you would have expected if Valerie was struggling to get away from someone. Yeah. It's it, when I was reading about the case, it, my first, because I said there was like no sign of a struggle mm. and coupled with or triggering the alarm. Like to me, it seemed like there had to be a weapon involved. Someone had to be, mm-hmm. you know, pointing a gun at her enough that she knew to trigger the alarm, but then, mm-hmm. you know, really had to comply and not fight because there was a, there was an equalizer with some sort of a weapon. Right. Mm-hmm. I think what's so weird too is, you know, if the robbery alarm is tripped, unless she's just and and from everything I read, and again, there aren't a lot of details out there. I mean, I I normally find, you know, two or three hundred pages worth of research, and in Valerie's case, I found eight pages mm-hmm. worth um, that were printed. Um, and so there are a lot of gaps of of knowledge that I I don't have the information to fill in. So I don't know how much money was actually taken from the station, if any money was, or if it was just the alarm that was triggered. But even her purse was still sitting in the attendance station. So if there was a robbery, which when I mentioned, when I had a conversation with um, the Versailles chief of police, he did admit there there was a robbery and the murder, um, which tells me that something was taken. But why would they have not taken her mm-hmm. purse? That doesn't make any sense to me right. at all. Um, and, and then adding, you know, kidnapping as another crime that's happening here. And then... Um, after they mm-hmm. found her body, actually, we know a sexual assault as well. And so I think robbery and kidnapping and sexual assault and murder, I, I tend to think of some of those as separate crimes. Um, you know what I mean? Where someone who might commit, say, sexual yeah. assault or murder is not the same person who might rob a store. It, it, you know, like I would think a lot of people who are robbers wouldn't go. Yeah. Yeah, like this this case when I was reading about it, it says my wheels turning is always trying to figure out like what was going on there and it's tough because you don't have information because I'd be curious mm-hmm. if there in fact was a robbery did they take cash with them or did they specifically go because it would be a weird thing right, as as you're kind of alluding to Alice and it would be kind of a weird thing to come in with the intent of I want to steal you know a couple hundred bucks out of the till of the gas station mm-hmm. and then be like oh while I'm here. I'm going to kidnap right. and sexually assault and murder this woman. Yeah, it, it seems like a weird right. combination because oh. the most of the, if there wasn't a robbery, it seems like they just went in and targeted her because she was there by herself at a gas mm-hmm. station. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. sounds like we don't have all the details of the, on that. Right. And so I wonder sometimes if it was more than one person, like one person did go there with the intent to rob. And then the other person was like, you know what? This girl is all alone. So she's coming with us too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her, her body was found just a few hours later, right? It was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there was a woman, she had gotten up early to go to work. She lived about nine miles South of the center of her sales um, on this narrow lane near a ridge where new houses were being constructed and she actually saw Valerie's body. She called the police. Um, she actually called her husband as well. I actually spoke with uh, Valerie's brother today, and he has just recently spoken with the woman um, and her husband who discovered Valerie's body. This was the first time they had gotten to speak. And she told him, and I, kn- I know this is hearsay, I-, I get it, but she told him, she was there at the scene, that um, when the police responded, that there wasn't much care taken with the crime scene. I'll just say that in terms of mm-hmm. um, 
being careful not to destroy any tire tracks or footprints. Um, but she did say that she found Valerie in a top and panties, but no pants. Um, and that her underwear did look undisturbed, though I know the DNA evidence we have in the case is semen DNA. But all of this was in this tiny town called Nunsuch that is so small that there isn't even census mm-hmm. information about it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So in Versailles, where the gas station is at, is there, um, is there like a major highway or anything that runs through it or close by? Yeah, so they're actually going to be really close to the interstate. And then there's also a pretty major road that could connect them to Frankfurt, which is Kentucky State Capital. So they're pretty close to like a couple major highways. So to go into such a small area, like I feel most people wouldn't have, most people unfamiliar with the area, I don't think would have done that. You're literally from that Thornton's Allison. How far from the interstate would you say? Oh, like from three the thorns. miles, yeah, probably yeah. three miles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was getting. I'm just is thinking through it, like if if it was some kind of transient, you know, random person from a highway or whatever, how would they know to go all the way back down this they private wouldn't. road out in the middle of nowhere? It seems like it would be someone from that's that's familiar with the mm-hmm. area. And as far as like the crime scene stuff, it's not surprising. We see this so many times when you know horrific crimes like this happen in small towns because. You know, it's just not something, you know, like you said, that's that town small. The the, the town I live in has a oh, population yeah. of about 5,000. Mm-hmm. And if we had like a homicide like that here, I'm sure it would be, you know, they our, our cops have never, the cops that are currently on the force have never in their life dealt with a homicide, mm-hmm. you know, so right. it, it's, it's a, right. it's a new, you know, it's not something they do every day. So it's not surprising if there was mm-hmm. um, some mess ups on the crime scene. I think the frustration from the family's part, because the family's very frustrated with law enforcement, isn't even necessarily Mm -hmm. with any. Yes, there's frustration that the crime scene was not um, protected. Absolutely. But their frustration has been more on the front of the family has actually put in the time and the effort to try to get outside help for that local law enforcement, and they won't accept Mm -hmm. the help. Yeah, like big names, like um, Dr. Lee. They reached out to Parabon. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Valerie's brother, Michael, actually, he was living in Connecticut at the time, and that's where Dr. Henry Lee was. And so he said he called and called and called and called and called until he finally got a hold of, a hold of Dr. Henry Lee. And he said, you know, he, he told him about his sister's case, and Dr. Henry Lee agreed um, to help. He said, all I need is for someone from that investigating department um, to request my services. And Michael was like, okay, we've got this. Uh, you know, he said his family was willing to pay for Dr. Lee's plane flight and everything. Um, but the state had passed it on to the mayor who passed it on to the coroner to decide who passed it along to along to the police chief who said, Oh, we don't need him. He's a blood, a blood spatter expert. No, thank you. And Allison, didn't you say that when you interviewed the police officer, um, that he had never heard about Dr. Lee offering to help with the case. Yeah. He said he wasn't aware um, of that, but as soon as I walked in the police chief and he was a very kind man, but uh, as soon as I walked in, he said, I'm not answering any questions having to do with DNA. And so, oh, wow. yeah, um, th- but there's been a lot of stuff. So oh, I'm sorry, Bob. 
Oh, that's all right. I was just wondering because like I know Doctor Lee as a blood spatter analyst, blood spatter analysts um, as as well. What was it they were hoping? It just like crime scene reconstruction or, or yeah. DNA stuff? I think both. Um, so at the crime scene, and again, this is from what I know from the family. They know that her death, Valerie's death, was not a quick one. Um, her sister Tracy actually told me that. She knew that Valerie had managed to get away no fewer than three times. So through a row of trees, along a fence row, and then finally to the driveway where she was found. So we know that the crime Mm -hmm. scene kind of went um, a distance. But they also believed, the family did, that the, the original intent was not necessarily in their mind to murder Valerie, but to scare her because um, they told me that the murder weapon was actually a pocket knife because the blade had Mm -hmm. broken off in her hand that was tucked under her back. So I think they were really wanting Dr. Lee to kind of look at this scene with fresh eyes, you know, knowing that these local Mm -hmm. cops probably had never dealt with a crime scene as gruesome as this one. And Dr. Lee had just helped solve the woodchipper murders. Right. So, um, so she's found, she'd been stabbed to death. She was sexually assaulted. I know, mm-hmm. I know Allison, you spent months researching for that episode and you've talked to a lot of the family members. Um, sounds like there was, there was DNA evidence and mm-hmm. uh, were they able to get profiles from the DNA? So <laughs> that's a, a point of contention. So the DNA has never been entered into CODIS. The family Mm -hmm. was told that there were not enough genetic markers, and yet I do know that they have compared the DNA with a couple potential suspects. So maybe you know more Mm -hmm. about DNA than I do, Bob, but that's very confusing to me as to how there couldn't be enough to put it into CODIS, and yet there were enough genetic markers to test against people. Well, so what it could be is the FBI has... A, and I'm, I don't remember the number off the top of my head. I want to say 13 or 17. There's a certain number of loci of genetic markers that a profile has to have in order to enter it into CODIS. Hmm. But if you have, we're just putting out like a broad search for anybody that's in mm-hmm. the system. But just because it doesn't have enough markers to go into CODIS, there's still something there. So say, you know, out of out of 23 markers say you have 11 um and that that may not be enough to put it through codis but if i if i suspect you know if i suspected maggie of of committing this crime and then Mm -hmm. i could compare the the markers i have to her markers um and and then narrow it down to even you know within millions of people of you know that it (laughs) that it's most likely hers but it's but it has to there's a bar a level um, that you have to reach before the FBI, you can put it into CODIS through the FBI. Okay, um, I, I think, but there I think may that's be, why... depending how much genetic genealogy may be something that they're able to, I don't know how much of a profile you have to have in order to do that. Right. And I know that the family has reached out to Parabon Nanolabs in Virginia. Um, and Michael is now very interested in um, the MVAC DNA testing, which I know um, mm-hmm. was with the West Memphis three case. Um, but right. again, with Parabon, at least it, they need to have the investigating agency and the detective in charge to invite them to do the work. And the family is planning right. on creating a petition to make that happen because so far local law enforcement has not been willing to do that. 
Well, um, feel free to reach out to me if, if they ever get to a point where they need to help advertise uh, a petition or something like that I'd, I'd be happy to through truth and justice and the show help do that. Cause this is, this is just one of those cases at 32 years old. It's a cold mm-hmm. case. It seems like there's enough evidence there that it should be able to, you know, there was a, a physical struggle. There was, there was a sexual assault. There's semen. There should be enough there mm-hmm. that this case should be solvable. So if, if you need any help or the family wants any help helping to put the word out about it, um, please feel free to reach out to do that. And and with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna I don't want to give much more away because you have a, a, a great full episode on this. It's yeah. episode number 113. Their names are Maggie and Allison, and the podcast is called Coffee and Cases. Episode 113 covers the murder of Valerie Brooks, and there are over 144 episodes to choose from. So check it out; it could be your next big true crime binge. Ladies, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you so thank much, you. Bob. It was fun. And unlike your students, you two are special. <laughs> yeah. oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, Please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.